Welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Welcome to Grid Talk. We're very pleased today to have with us Steve Malnight, the president and CEO of Duquesne Light in Pittsburgh. Steve was formerly senior vice president of energy supply and policy at PG&E in, in California. Good morning, Steve. How are you? Good morning, Marty. It's great to be with you. I, I've gone into my archives and I've dug up an op-ed you wrote for Energy Biz Magazine exactly seven years ago this month, where you wrote, quote, as renewable resources and distributed generation grows, we will continue to redefine what it means to be a modern electric utility. We have a sense of what that means in California, but what does that mean today in the industrial heartland like Pittsburgh? Yeah, you know, thanks for uh, thanks for asking that. That's a that's a great quote that I uh, forgot about after seven years. So thanks for reminding me. Um, you know. I think one of the things that I've been most excited about coming to Pittsburgh is to see uh, the industrial heartland of this country that, frankly, built uh, most of what we we have. I mean, the first AC electric system was really built right here in Pittsburgh by George Westinghouse back in the day of, you know, the Battle of the Currents. And, uh, you know, while I think California and other parts of the country have sort of taken the visible lead in uh, things like renewable energy deployment and DERs and other things. You're going to see the rest of the country and particularly the industrial heartland continue to catch up. And in, in many ways, we have the opportunity here now to learn from the things that worked in places like California, but also the things that didn't work and uh, build a system that's going to do the same thing we talked about doing out in California. We're going to serve customers safely, reliably every day with the power they need, but do it in very different ways, in ways where customers are not just uh, flipping a switch on and, and not thinking about where their power comes from, but are focused and concerned about their, their environmental footprint, uh, the resiliency of their system, maybe their self-sufficiency. Maybe they're powering their electric vehicles instead of just turning on lights in their home. And, you know, they may be using storage or home automation to have a much smarter energy use. And frankly, all the things we talked about in places like California are in the future for the rest of this country as well, because the technology and the customer preferences and frankly, the customer desire to be more engaged is, is I believe, something that's universal, even if it happens at slightly different timescales. In California, you had a pretty strong push from state mandate to ramp up on renewables and a mandate on distributed generation, energy storage. Absent that external mandate and also the political climate in California, how much of this will be done and how long will it take? Well, I think, you know, one of the reasons you saw California be so aggressive on a public policy perspective was because public policy was required in order to uh, see a lot of these technologies begin their deployment in the early phases of their life. Frankly, there was a day not too long ago when solar PV was far more expensive than other ways to generate electricity. And I think that because of the leadership of places like California that 
have uh, really pushed for technology deployment in those early stages. The rest of the country now has the opportunity to look at these technologies in a different light because uh, in many cases, they're cheaper options for customers to take advantage of now. You don't have to only want green energy to want solar. Uh, you know, you can look at solar as a way, if you're a business customer or a residential customer, to provide certainty and, and clarity on your going forward pricing uh, and often access power at just the same cost or even cheaper than you could from other fuel sources. So I think that here we're going to see now economics and customer preferences start to drive uh, a lot of this, even if public policy isn't quite the same level of driver here as it is in places like California. My understanding is your customer base gets about 70% of its energy from nuclear and 30% is split between coal, gas, and renewables. Let's focus on renewables. How big is it today and how big would you like to see it? Well, for us, um, we don't generate electricity. So if we're, uh, you know, we're procuring basically off of PJM for our polar customers, those customers who stay with us. So customers in Pennsylvania today can take advantage of 100% solar if they uh, want to go to different competitive offerings, or they can go, uh, you know, with just sort of uh, PJM power, which is that sort of 70% nuclear for our region and our local area. Solar is relatively small here in Duquesne Lights territory. We have about 3,000 uh, net metered customers with a new plate capacity of only about 26 megawatts. But I will tell you, that's something that we see growing every day. And we see not only sort of net metered residential customers growing, but large commercial users who are looking to take advantage of solar. University of Pittsburgh, as an example, is building out a, a 20 megawatt project at their, that will power their campus. It'll, it's a grid connected project that'll provide about 13% of their use. And one project that I think is just so fascinating and interesting, so classically Pittsburgh, there's a development here called Mill 19, which is a, a former steel mill that is being repurposed and reused. The superstructure of, of the mill, the steel infrastructure, is still being used and we're literally building new highly efficient energy efficient buildings inside of that steel superstructure where we're locating research on robotics artificial intelligence carnegie mellon has several of their uh, research institutes there and other advanced manufacturers are building there and and that site is going to be powered by solar array which is on the, the old sloped roof of the mill it's actually going to be the largest single sloped installation of solar panels anywhere. I mean, imagine like your, your home, but going for thousands and thousands of feet, almost 5,000 solar panels on this project. Uh, and that's going to uh, be there and continue to grow. What role is um, Duquesne playing in that project? Well, for most of these projects, these are customer preference projects that we're interconnecting the grid. You know, as, as always, the grid needs to stand ready to provide the reliable power when the sun's not shining. So. I view us as uh, the grid provider, as the critical partner to enable these uh, these locations to take advantage of solar because we're ready to integrate that solar into the system and ensure the grid's there to provide their power they, whenever they need it. Let's turn for a second to the subject of microgrids. Uh, your company partnered with the University of Pittsburgh Swanson School of Engineering back in 2015 to launch a uh, microgrid test. Um, 
six years on, five years on, where is that and uh, what have you learned from it? We've done many partnerships with Pitt and Carnegie Mellon and others on microgrid testing. Um, that project is uh, actually, I'm not actually aware of that one. That predates me a little bit because there's so many different projects <laughs> that we have going on here right now. Well, just give us the lay of the land of, of what the leading edge is on microgrids and your involvement in it. Yeah. I mean, I think that we're seeing a couple different places where microgrids are being used, you know, on some on a larger scale. Pittsburgh's airport here recently announced a large scale microgrid. Now, for, for them, Pittsburgh's airport actually has a lot of land and they uh, do natural gas drilling on their land. So their microgrid is primarily going to be powered by natural gas, but they're also building solar uh, installations there as well. And we're supporting them as the grid partner uh, to make sure that they can um, you know, have grid power anytime they need it. So you see these very big examples of microgrids down to much smaller community-based um, microgrids where uh, there's, a, there's a cooperative here called Millvale Food and Energy Hub where we're building a small-scale DC-based actual microgrid to help with education uh, and food development at a local community level. So we see microgrids coming. And I think the interesting thing that, you know, we're all still working on, I think, an understanding of microgrid is the, the benefits to individual customers for resiliency and reliability. And how do we make sure that we're providing those real benefits through a microgrid versus a full-scale grid? Because I believe, you know, when you, when you look at microgrids, you can imagine, you know, one microgrid connecting to another microgrid and increasing its reliability even more, and then connecting to another and another, and pretty soon we've rebuilt the grid. Um, you know, I do believe the grid, uh, the network that we have been building out for 140 years here in Pittsburgh, is still going to be uh, a critical part of enabling all these customers, businesses, and individuals to do what they need to get done. But microgrids can serve a unique purpose at a specific site where the power quality may need to be higher, where the reliability needs to be at a significantly higher level, and it's willing to sort of pay the costs associated with that. But I think that microgrids are an exciting concept, but they're exciting to me because, frankly, we've proven out the fact that grids are, are incredibly reliable and a great societal benefit through you know, the development of the grid, which started, as I said, right here with George Westinghouse <laughs> building out an AC grid. Right. I was going to say, which probably was called the first microgrid. <laughs> okay. So when the rest of the, the technology world thinks about Pittsburgh in the last few years, they've thought about autonomous vehicles. And uh, I think that started in 2016. And from what I could tell, there are about five companies testing 55 driverless cars in 32 Pittsburgh neighborhoods. What is your view of this and the significance of this to Pittsburgh and its future? And what role is Duquesne Light playing in it? You know, I'll say that Pittsburgh is today, I think, one of the most significant hubs for autonomous drive research. And it's really built on a foundation, which is a broader technology expertise around robotics. Um, Carnegie Mellon, in particular, uh, is probably the world's leader in robotics research. And that has sort of spun off the autonomous drive vision. It's also looking at robotics and manufacturing, artificial intelligence. So the technology hub of Pittsburgh is, is much broader than just autonomous drive. And that's why you see 
the Googles and the Apples and the Microsofts also locating here, um, as well as you know the Ubers and the uh, Argo AIs and the autonomous drive companies. It's I think a critical part of uh, the future of Pittsburgh. You know, when you think about Pittsburgh, many think of a, a steel mill town, and I will say Pittsburgh has that legacy of building, uh, frankly, the country and uh, making the steel that built this country. You know, I used to look at the Golden Gate Bridge, and it's nice to know the origin of that Golden Gate Bridge and all the steel was right here in Pittsburgh. But at the same time, I think that what we really have is a legacy of building the future, and that's what uh, is happening here again. When you see this uh, proliferation of autonomous uh, vehicles and robotics, are you a cheerleader from the traditional standpoint of supporting economic development that most utilities uh, embrace? Or is there a change in your business model that might be associated with, with this development? Well, I do think that what we're going to see is most of these autonomous drive uh, vehicles in the future are going to be electric. And electrification of transportation is, I think, one of the biggest opportunities that we as a country have to both uh, improve our environment and uh, carbon emissions and local air quality. Uh, And that's a critical reason to do it. But it's also, I think, an opportunity for us to really take advantage of clean, domestic, locally produced fuels and uh, power our transportation system. And and that's the critical beginning. So we are a huge supporter of electric vehicles. Um, We're the first Pennsylvania electric distribution company to have a electric vehicle charging pilot approved by the PUC here. We recently uh, installed uh, over 100 uh, charging ports, which increased the number of public chargers in Pittsburgh by 70%. And we're going to continue on that pathway. I think the evolution of that is to autonomous drive. And that's where we really have the opportunity through partnerships with um, you know, DOE, with universities, with others, to understand how do we best optimize the electric system and the transportation system together? Where do we site massive charging centers for these autonomous drive vehicles in the future how do we ensure that we have grid capability and, and the grid connectedness that's ready for that? And we're looking, uh, partnering with local universities on those questions and also on the questions of how we uh, bring more solar and renewables onto the system. Mm-hmm. You arrived um, in Pittsburgh a little over a year ago, and it wasn't long before your company announced the acquisition of the efficiency network. Tell us um what that says about your plans for the company and its business model future, and uh, describe a little bit about what you see of benefit in the efficiency network. Yeah, so the efficiency network also, we, we have sort of called it now 10, the company 10. It is, uh, it is an energy solutions company for um, you know, commercial customers, primarily in municipality, universities, schools, hospitals. They do uh, everything from basic energy efficiency work to lighting, to building automation, to uh, you know other work where we're trying to help customers with their unique energy challenges. I've, I'm a firm believer that, as I said before, customers, be they large business customers all the way down to individual customers, are going to engage more in how they use energy, and that's going to be enabled by technology. So the one size 
fits all solution of utility grid service is not, I believe, what we will see as the only option in the future. I think we will see significant growth for companies that help customers use energy in smarter ways. And that's why we wanted to, that's why we purchased 10, because we wanted to establish that platform for us to prepare to grow. I think we'll be looking at adding in many other um, energy solutions like solar, like uh, on-site generation, storage, electric vehicle charging, and other things as customers uh, look to use energy in many different ways. So the footprint of that company is primarily now in Pennsylvania. Do you see it growing to more of a national footprint? I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that makes it unique is their incredible close tie to their customers. And I think that regional players often have the advantage of closeness and uh, best understanding of their customers. So our focus is really more on how do we continue to expand the region as well as the offerings that we make. But, you know, we'll see how far that region grows. Part of the strength of the utility business model for the last century has been its skill at capital formation for expensive projects. And your company has invested I, I see numbers from 2.6 to 2.9 billion in its infrastructure in the last decade, uh, wrapping up now. And uh, tell us a little bit what that's bought you and what kind of infrastructure investment you see in the coming decade. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know over the last decade we've really been very focused on taking what is you know a, a pretty old infrastructure system here, as I said, that you know dates back to the beginning and bringing it uh, up to more modern standards. And, and that will continue. You know, that's an ever, that's what utilities do all the time. We're constantly investing in aged infrastructure replacement. But what I see for us in the next decade as we continue to invest in the system is also bringing on much more um, intelligence, control, monitoring into the system so that we can operate it in very different ways. I think we're you know, we're a little behind many of the California utilities who've really released their sort of grid modernization visions, but those are the exact same problems that we're thinking about here on how do we build out the modern grid infrastructure for the future. I think it will absolutely look different. We are going to see a world where customers use, um, you know, maybe less grid energy, but use the grid more intensively. And how we build our system to prepare for that is really going to be the focus for us over the next decade, um, which will still involve significant investments in, in our system. What do you personally like about having moved from a company the size of PG&E out in California to Duquesne? And uh, what are the, the strengths of the, this new opportunity and what are some of the drawbacks of being at a smaller utility? Yeah, you know, uh, having spent 16 years in one of the largest utilities in the country, and now coming to uh, a company of about 1,600 employees serving 600,000 customers, there's definitely a lot of differences. I will tell you first, the thing I love is Duquesne Light is a company that is intimately involved in our community and the city of Pittsburgh. We are part of this community and we take great pride in that. So having the ability to focus on you know, our region and the needs of our region is a tremendous advantage. I mean, PG&E's service territory is probably roughly the size of Pennsylvania. It, it's very difficult in a service territory that big 
which spans so much incredible diversity from, you know, a Bakersfield, California to a San Francisco to really say that you are uh, intimately involved and connected to the community. You understand the needs of the community and you're there to serve that community every day. Um, so that's, I think, one significant advantage. I think smaller utilities also have um, a tremendous opportunity, which we don't always use, but which we are going to focus on continuing to use here, that it's a lot easier to be nimble and more dynamic and drive change in the company of our size than it is in many very large utilities. And I, I believe that while uh, you know, a disadvantage may be scale and size and the ability to um, you know, uh, implement practices across a very broad service territory, the advantage is the speed and nimbleness that you can have in making changes faster and trying things in experimenting in learning and changing and evolving. Uh, I think that's one of the tremendous advantages of uh, a company of our size. Do you think change will come faster at a smaller company than at a larger? I think that the uh, smaller companies have an opportunity to learn faster from change and to implement change faster than large companies do. Now, just because you have the opportunity doesn't mean you're always successful at it and doesn't mean you always take advantage of it. Um, so that's, I think, the challenge of you know leading a company is how do you make sure you understand where your strengths are and really focus on um, implementing them and working through them? And that's that's one of the things that excites me about going to work every day here. How has the company fared with its 1,600 employees since the uh, pandemic has hit? And uh, has it forced you to change your operations in, in any permanent way, you think? Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Speaking of dynamic, uh, I mean, we've as a company, I think we've done very well through this uh, pandemic. We've continued to provide customers and our community with safe and reliable power that they need. Um, and candidly, our size, I thought, was a tremendous advantage early on. We, um, we were able very quickly to make the moves necessary to take 1,000 of our 1,600 employees working from home on a full-time basis. I mean, we, we took our entire call center which had always been, you know, in downtown Pittsburgh um, as an in-person call center. And we made it a completely virtual call center from home in, I think it was about eight days, eight to nine days. And frankly, the limiting factor in what took us so long was just how quickly we could get laptops. Um, you know, we had people taking calls from home within a few days. And uh, I think that what we found over that time is that we're working very well from home. You know, there are, there are significant advantages to it, um, and I think it'll be a part of our future no matter what. We're going to have a very different-looking uh, workforce in the future. But at the same time, you know, I miss the connection with many of my employees, that face-to-face -face connection. I think they do as well, and we're going to have to find a way to ensure that we maintain the tightness of our culture and our team and uh, the, the alignment we have with our folks and do that. Um, while staying virtual, uh, at least for you know, you know a little while longer, I think we're we're expecting that we're going to be virtual uh, at least through Labor Day. We've told our employees that, and uh, frankly, given that we have to focus on safety and the and the life saving nature of our business, um, we're going to make sure that before we make a change, that we know we're we're very safe in getting that done. Just really quickly, have you had to do any special measures to guarantee the uh, security of your grid as workers started working from home and remotely? 
Yeah, I mean, we still have, you know, all of our, for example, um, you know, SIP and bulk electric system. That's all. That's all still done, you know, in our operation centers and other things. So we've we've had very good cyber controls, uh, SIP controls, and other things in place from the very beginning. So we didn't have to do too much. Um, as we're looking at new tools, you know, to roll out new collaboration tools online. I would say we're rolling them out a little slower because we want to make sure um, that and take the right precautions to make sure that we're not increasing the vulnerability or risk to our systems. But, um, you know, that's all I think still moving forward at a, at a very good clip. And, and we're going to we're going to be able to implement those systems without increasing the risk to the to the bulk system. Great. Uh, any concluding thoughts? Well, you know, I just I appreciate uh, appreciate your taking the interest in what's happening, um, we often, as we started off, we often really focus on what's happening in uh, in California or some of the largest utilities. And I think what I'm excited about is seeing how different communities across the country and different customers all take advantage of the incredible opportunities that are ahead of us with technology and, and clean energy production. And I think you're gonna see is that while, you know, California and others have sort of led the way to date, I think that you're going to see the um, the lasting and long-lasting solutions are going to come from other parts of the country as well, uh, and, and I'm excited to make that happen here in Pittsburgh. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Grid Talk. We've been talking with Steve Malknight, the CEO and president of Duquesne Light. You have been listening to Grid Talk. You can send us feedback or questions at gridtalk at nrel.gov. We encourage you to give the podcast a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. Lastly, for more information about the series or to subscribe, please visit smartgrid.gov. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.